Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Trey Stevens is co-founder and executive chairman of Andrel Industries, a defense technology company and a partner of venture capital firm Founders Fund, where he invests across sectors with a particular interest in startups operating in the government space. Welcome, Trey. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so I'll go ahead and uh, kick it off with the first question, helping everyone who's listening get a little bit of a better sense of your background. Given you're both an operator at Anderil and an uh, investor at Founders Fund, um, what drives you to do both of these things instead of just picking one? Yeah, so uh, I, prior to joining Founders Fund, I was one of the early employees at Palantir, uh, where I worked on the business development team. And you know, but prior to that, I actually worked in the U.S. intelligence community. And, you know, I never thought that I would be working in venture. In fact, I can honestly say that, you know, prior to working at Palantir, I didn't even know what venture capital was. I, I remember there was this trope in the movie Wedding Crashers where they were pretending to be venture capitalists. And um, that was literally my entire exposure to this industry. Like I had no, I had no idea what it was beyond that kind of joke. But after I joined Founders Fund, it occurred to me that I still had this real and kind of very present emotional energy around the national security space um, and the the kind of the mission orientation of my my career to, to that point. Um, and so I ended up spending like the first two and a half years at Palantir, or sorry, at Founders Fund, just looking at like every national security facing company I could find that was interested in raising venture and didn't really find a whole lot worth investing in. You know, one great example of this is actually Ian's uh, prior company, uh, Synapse, which was one of the few companies that I found that I got really excited about and ended up um, writing a check into in the security space. Um, but th there weren't like dozens of these worth investing in. And so I, I went back to the investment team and I, I basically said, look, what we need is we need like a, you know, 21st century defense prime. Like, you know, if you were to build Lockheed Martin from the ground up today, what would it look like? Well, it certainly wouldn't look like Lockheed Martin. It wouldn't look like Northrop Grumman. It wouldn't look like Raytheon. Um, it would probably be a software first kind of uh, function, um, you know, where you're building capabilities that are relevant in artificial intelligence, computer vision, autonomy, um, things like that. Uh, and then you're wrapping the metal around it. So like software defined, hardware enabled, rather than the historical way we do this with hardware defined, software enabled capabilities. Um, and my team challenged me. They, they, were, they basically said, look, if you know what this should look like and you can't find it, go ye therefore and, uh, and start a company. And so I guess the long roundabout way of answering your question is that my intent was never to do both of these at the same time. Uh, in fact, my intent was never to work in venture capital at all. Um, and yet, just kind of the way that it worked, I ended up finding a problem set that I cared about deeply. And I really couldn't imagine going another day without trying to build this thing that um, has now turned into like a really cool company, um, but uh, could really not have done that without the support of Founders Fund. Incredible. And I think a lot of people are also curious, what does a day in the life look like for you? How do you balance both of these? Are you splitting your time each day, half here, half there? Is it one day a week? Like, yeah. what does that balance look like? <laughs> balance, what an interesting word. 
I don't really feel like I'm balancing anything. I feel like I have two jobs. So, you know, it's more ad hoc. It's not as simple as like, you know, one day here, one day there, one day here, one day there. Um, It's much more just like a really complicated negotiation of time and effort, um, depending on what's going on in any particular uh, day. You know, it kind of jumps all over the place. There are some weeks where I'm 70% Enroll and 30% founders fund. And then the next week I'll be 70% founders fund and 30% enroll. And that's okay. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out like where the, the burning fires are that need to be put out and focusing time and attention on those priorities. And Trey, given your background, both, you know, at Andrew and Founders Fund, but also your previous experience as a volunteer, uh, you have a network and, and you're constantly looking at, you know, very specific as, and super interesting, pro, super interesting uh, programs and projects that relate to the U.S. government and, you know, the defense sector. When you look at the United States today, what keeps you up at night and what are problems that you're worried about that you think the average person perhaps listening to the podcast may not know of or may may not be top of mind to them? Yeah. You know, I, I call this the crazy uncle problem. So almost all of us have a crazy uncle that, you know, you're always a little bit afraid of what they're going to say around the table on Thanksgiving. Um, and, and I think most crazy uncles think that there are all of these top secret laboratories underground where we have captured alien spaceships and all of this, like, absolutely unbelievable technology and that the United States is basically like a guaranteed global hegemon for now and ever. It's like, you know, we, we have this incredible, you know, infrastructure that no one knows of that's just going to keep us in power. And that's just wrong. Uh, it is foundationally wrong. <laughs> uh, we are vulnerable. There are top secret programs, but they aren't things that are, you know, orders of magnitude beyond the technologies that you know about today. Um, And we are in a a arms race of some sort with our great power adversaries, um, where, you know, they have capabilities that we don't have, and we have capabilities that they don't have. And we're constantly, you know, playing those off against each other and trying to figure out how we would do if there were, uh, if a war did break out. And I'll be honest, like the thing that keeps me up at night is that when we war game a conflict between U.S. and China, uh, we lose almost every time. Um, and there's this is something that I feel like most Americans just don't really have a good grasp on is that, um, you know, there's, of course, like dip- really important things that we need to be doing diplomatically um, from a foreign policy perspective to keep us out of war. Uh, but you have to both uh, work to prevent war as well as work to prepare for war. Um, and those things work hand in hand, actually. Deterrence is a critical aspect of national security and foreign policy. And can you talk a little bit more about on how you think we got here in the first place? Do you think we had a sense of arrogance or you know, superiority that over the last 20, 30 years, the United States was untouchable and somehow things have changed and we just didn't notice? What, what, how do you evaluate the situation? Yeah, I mean, the Cold War was an existential threat between the United States and the Soviet Union and risk of nuclear war. And in many ways, during the Cold War, the former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, believed the United States had all the technology it needed to win. Um, It was just a question of making sure we had enough of the tools that we owned to win a conflict with the Soviets. And, you know, you often hear references to like the bomber gap or the missile gap or whatever, which was really a justification to 
spend more money on existing systems. However, um, today, by contrast, it's actually like a race for new technology. Everyone recognizes that brute force isn't going to determine the winner in a future conflict. It's really about like, how can we take advantage of the advances uh, in predominantly software driven fields um, and apply them to the battlefield to advantage the warfighter? And China, Russia, our other adversaries, Iran, North Korea, um, they're leaning into new tech to win that asymmetric advantage over the United States. Um, but the Department of Defense is still kind of bizarrely locked in like a Robert McNamara frame where it's like, you know, how can we build these huge exquisite systems like aircraft carriers and uh, nuclear submarines and, you know, fifth or sixth generation fighter planes? And then how do we acquire enough of them to overwhelm the enemy? And it's like, wow, that's just that's not actually the strategy that's going to win. And uh, our the culture and the policy regulatory infrastructure that has gotten us to where we are today uh, is still the one that's being enforced. And it's not set up to kind of bring those new ideas to the battlefield. And when you think about funding new technologies, I think in a foreign policy context, a lot of people think about funding submarines or funding you know, missiles and things like that. But there is a lot of application for technology that is being developed at startups and big, big companies that can also be uh, applicable in a foreign policy context. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that, uh, that you know, most people may not know of? Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of begins and ends with software. <laughs> uh, a lot of this is not big, expensive, exquisite hardware systems. It's uh, kind of moving rapidly and being bold in our de deployment of new capabilities that are driven by um, primarily like the increased compute power, you know, our ability to operate at the edge in ways that we've never been able to before, um, the, you know, realities of autonomy and how that changes the way that we engage in, in war fighting. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's all about building aircraft carriers. It's not all about building really complicated submarines. That said, like there are, in those different domains, if you're talking about like satellites in space or next generation aircraft, which, you know, by and large, are, I think you're seeing a vast increase in unmanned systems in the air. Um, you'll have unmanned ground systems as well, things like next gen combat vehicle that are optionally manned. Um, and there's a lot of investment that's going into like the, you know, small autonomous drone space as well, like uh, for underwater vehicles. So I, I think that we'll still build the same types of systems. It, largely for uh, these conflicts, but they won't look the same. You know, it won't be like a $13 billion aircraft carrier. It's like a, a much less expensive, almost attributable in nature uh, system that is very likely to kind of augment or replace um, some of these more expensive things. So given all of that and the importance of building kind of these more nimble, maybe software first products as opposed to building in another giant aircraft carrier, um, a lot of this boils back to, yes, the technology side, but then also the procurement side and what is uh, the government actually going to pay for? What do you think needs to happen to wake the government up a little bit faster around maybe it's not just about building a bunch of aircraft carriers, but we need to focus more on, you know, better um, uh, procurement options, uh, better R&D um, uh, things like SBIRs, AFWORKs, uh, mechanisms like that to kind of help uh, make more of this software innovation occur? I think, I think it's really just like a leadership culture. You know, there, there's literally like dozens, if not hundreds of reports and commissions that have been like 
executed in the last decade, like calling for, you know, revisions to the, you know, federal regulations around acquisition law and, you know, ways to structure programs and new pathways to acquire software. Like, I mean, there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of reports that have talked about this, but at the, at the end of the day, I believe we have all the authorities that we need <laughs> to do the things that we need to do. We just don't, it's just bad decision-making. Um, and I think we have to hold our leaders accountable for, um, you know, doing the right thing and for getting educated on the kind of gaps that they have in their understanding of how these things are, are shifting in the future. And I don't think these are bad people. Like, you know, these are patriots, like people that care deeply about U.S. national security. It's just, you know, after the Cold War, we had kind of a brain drain of technical talent out of the department where the most aspirational, you know, technical people realized that they could go and move a lot faster in the private sector. We didn't have that existential threat that was kind of motivating progress. Um, and they didn't come back. And so, um, you know, we have legions of people who have no exposure to, you know, technology development on an absolute basis. They only have like the, on a relative basis exposure inside of the Pentagon. And so they get stuck making all these decisions that are just based on their prior experiences, um, which is not the way to disrupt in the future is like, you know, probably anyone listening to this podcast knows that like, that's not how disruption works. So I think that's kind of, the, we're stuck in a loop. So if you were in a position to become any of these leaders that we talk about, where it's a failure of leadership to point it in the right direction, what role would you take? Would it be president of the United States, something <laughs> else? And what would you do to actually fix this, right? Can one person fix this or does it require a fundamental mind shift in how people think? No, I don't think one person can fix it. I think there's like layers and layers of people that you just have to have a kind of organizational cultural movement to, to get this right. Um, there are all sorts of things that you could do that would be totally illegal that would be great. Like one thing that you could do is you could say, for this contract, we are going to award it to a non-top five defense company. So it's like Lockheed cannot bid or participate in this. Raytheon cannot bid or participate in this. Again, there aren't, these aren't bad people at Lockheed or Raytheon. It's just they're not incentivized or motivated to do things the way that we probably need to do them um, in certain contexts. And so, you know, but that's totally illegal. You can't like intentionally exclude people from competition. Um, but you know, we need acquisition leaders, uh, you know, or budget owners that are willing to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with this non-traditional uh, company or this new entrant to the defense space to build a capability because I believe they have the right people to execute the mission. Um, and you have to believe that fundamentally, that there is a talent gap uh, in these core capability areas. Um, and then you have to make decisions that are based on your understanding of that core talent gap. So, Trey, to, to go back to the analogies that, that you're making to the Cold War, what, one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that I, I think we definitely did not do back then was to actually fund cutting-edge Soviet te technology. <laughs> is, your, is your view, when you look at the, you know, be it the venture capital landscape today, that somehow we're funding both sides of this arm, arms race? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's actually happening in uh, a variety of different ways. Um, but certainly... You know, we spent 20 years, more than 20 years, 30 years um, building out kind of the broad, like Western liberal idea of globalization, um, where, you know, we were manufacturing goods in foreign countries and that was good. 
Um, we were investing in foreign foreign assets. That was good. We allowed foreign investment in U.S. the U.S. economy. That was good um, until it wasn't. And there came a point where I think people started realizing that uh, we were kind of being sold a false bill of goods uh, on like unbridled globalization. Um, and there's still a hangover that's kind of like bubbling um, as a result of that. And that includes things like kind of the civil military fusion aspect of what the Chinese economy is, is doing to say, you know, companies like Huawei or DJI or um, SenseTime or, you know, you can name the company. Um, they have not only uh, an interest in having the government work with those commercial entities, it's actually an obligation. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of on the hook. And the U.S. consumer in many ways has facilitated that by buying consumer products or participating in that economy. You could say the same thing about TikTok. I'm not accusing TikTok of national violations of national security norms, but um, you know, when we when we interact with that ecosystem in a world in which there is civil military fusion on the other side, um, we don't necessarily know how our consumer behaviors are going to impact their ability to fund uh, internal research and development for technologies that could work to uh, to negative ends for the the U.S. foreign policy position. So, um, so yes, I think the consumers on the hook, the investors who have put money into these companies are on the hook. And, uh, and certainly like at a geopolitical level, this is something we have to think about. I think like the defense department, the department of commerce, the department of state, we all need to be thinking very carefully about like, how do we not, we don't want to provoke war, um, but how do we set up rules and boundaries around foreign investment um, in both directions? Um, and how do we not make our, foreign policy position more difficult so that we can deter conflict um, and prevent gross violations of human human rights. Um, and that's something that we haven't been thinking about probably deeply enough in, a, in an appropriately nuanced way for the, for the last 30 years. And how do you think that this is going to play out over the next five or so years? Do you think we need a new sort of a Sputnik moment to, to wake everybody up to the challenge? And, and if so, what, what could that be? Yeah, I mean, Need is a is a dangerous word here. Um, I don't think we need a Sputnik moment, but I think we're going to get them, <laughs> whether or not we want. I mean, by the time this podcast is published, it seems very likely that um, Ukraine will have been invaded by Russia. Um, who knows how they're going to, you know, frame what exactly happened? Whether they're going to say that the the Ukrainians like instigated it and you know deep fake those things that are happening, which is what the State Department has been saying that they were preparing to do. Um, but one way or another, I think it, it is increasingly clear that our ability as, as a world power to deter our great power adversaries from uh, taking action in places where we would like for them not to is going to be sig significantly weakened. Um, I don't think anyone actually believes that we're going to you know, go into sending ground forces to wage uh, a campaign against a great power. Um, and I think that they are going to behave uh, with, with that understanding in the back of their mind. Um, so does that mean that Taiwan is going to be invaded by China uh, or it's going to be retaken by China? Um, if that happens, what are the geopolitical implications of that? You know, obviously people have talked about like, are we going to operation paperclip TSMC executives out of Taiwan? Uh, man, my answer is I hope so. Uh, uh, otherwise, I think it's going to be a really messed up supply chain for sub seven semiconductors. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of things that we need to we need to be thinking about, and I, I truly don't think globally anyone's taking our our position of power 
uh, as seriously as they as they used to. And just to double click on something that you said, um, how do you evaluate the threats coming from Russia and China differently? Yeah. Well, I would I would add other, you know, adversaries to that equation as well. You know, there's North Korea is a real threat um, regionally as well as globally. Um, Iran is a uh, huge financier and a weapons provider to many of adversarial regimes that we're, we're finding in conflict with our allies and partners that matters. Um, Russia, you know, we talk about as well, you know, same for China, obviously, which is, the, you know, the elephant in the room. Um, but then you have smaller players like Turkey uh, is conducting arms deals with countries that I don't think a lot of us would be comfortable with. You know, the TB2, the Bayraktar drone is being seen flying in all of these global conflicts that we're getting mix, mixed up in. And uh, that sort of um, that sort of stuff matters. So there's a lot of nuance and complexity to how these things are done and what sort of threats these countries uh, present to us um, and our allies. But you know, we could spend way more than the length of this podcast talking through those individual differences. But the important thing I think to remember is that this isn't just about like the United States versus China. It's certainly not about the United States versus the Chinese people. We should keep in mind that like the Chinese people are under the authority of, you know, an authoritarian regime. Uh, uh, and the Chinese Communist Party is in many ways responsible for, you know, what, what's happening there, um, not, the, not the people of China itself. Um, and the same goes for these other powers that we're concerned about. And, you know, when you see things like what we saw last week with uh, China and Russia signing like a most friendly nation alliance with one another, um, it's like an emerging new axis in the world. And I think that changes everything. It changes the way we think about geopolitics. It changes the way we think about resource acquisition. It changes the way we think about acquisition of critical materials like, you know, semiconductors and things like that. And, you know, this is tough. It's not as simple as like whatever political tribal soundbite um, you saw on Twitter yesterday. It's like these are really complicated issues. So given everything that you're describing as somebody who went through this and uh, created a company trying to help and solve some of the issues that we've laid out, it's obviously very compelling. It's something where if you're able to build technology to assist uh, with any of these uh, kind of Western ideals and help protect America, whatever it may be, there's a lot of desire to do that. However, traditionally, it's significantly easier to raise capital as somebody doing a B2B SaaS company, as opposed to somebody building a frontier tech or a company or a company with software who is might be dual use, but has a heavy focus on government or another large customer like that. How do you think that dynamic has evolved over time? And do you think entrepreneurs who are focused on frontier tech, hard tech ideas, or ideas that are catering towards government or DOD are now having an easier time getting funding? Yeah, I, I actually kind of reject this idea in principle. You know, oftentimes companies that have a hard time getting funded, the, fir the first thing they do is they just blame the investment community. And they're like, it's, you know, it's very hard to raise money as a frontier tech company when really the reality is it's really hard to build a business in frontier technology and investors follow business success. And so maybe if investors aren't willing to invest, the reason is that you can't actually sell the product um, or it's going to take too long for you to roll it out and like getting the capital that you need becomes like a massive skill set gap. Um, oftentimes we see academics 
like just pure academics that come in with these very cool ideas. And they're like, yeah, I need to raise like a hundred million dollars over the next five years to do this. Um, but they're bad at fundraising. They don't have any sort of concept of how they're going to build a business model. Uh, they're not very good at pitching, which means that it's going to be very hard to recruit the people they need to succeed in this mission. And so it's less about like, uh, it's hard to raise money because VCs don't like frontier tech. It's actually that it's really hard to build these businesses and VCs know that <laughs> they know that it's really hard to build these businesses. And so I think part of it is just getting really talented people, really talented entrepreneurs, really talented people that might otherwise go and build boring enterprise SaaS companies to go and commit themselves to doing something that's way harder. Um, and this is the reality about defense tech is that, you know, the three biggest defense companies in the last 20 years, new, new entrants, venture backed are Palantir, SpaceX and Android. And one commonality between those three is they were all founded by billionaires, like serial entrepreneur billionaires. You know, the reason that they were able to build these businesses, Andrew included, where they, I'm referring to myself in some ways, the reason that they're able to build those businesses is because they have the capital under their belt. They have the business acumen under their belt. They have a track record of delivering results. Um, and so it's significantly easier to run the business, to recruit the talent, to raise the capital. Um, and that, that sort of thing often goes unnoticed. So truly I encourage people to go and build frontier tech companies to do the harder stuff. Um, but you should have a strategy for doing that and understand what your advantages are. And you need to realize that raising capital is a skill set. And if you're having a hard time raising capital, there's a chance that you're just not good at raising capital, which means you need to go and find someone that is good at raising capital to help you build your business. And Trey, uh, I'm sure you could write a whole book about this, but w w when you talk to founders who want to build in the space, what are the most common mistakes that they make in, in the things that they don't know uh, when you talk about, you know, selling to the DOD or yeah. working with the government? Yeah, there are a lot. Um, I think one of them is assuming that finding someone on the ground that is that thinks your idea is good like establishing a belief that that is relevant to the future business success of your company. Um, there is no tie between feedback from an end user to a pilot and a prototype. And a, there's no tie between a pilot and a prototype to production contract. There's almost no tie between a production contract and, you know, a long-term program office and with sustainment funds attached to it. It's very, very hard um, to like actually build the thing that your customer wants uh, convince the customer to pay for it, convince Congress to appropriate funds to pay for it long-term um, and do that without any prior experience working in the market, which is just kind of lame, to be honest. Like it would be way better if the government was good enough at evaluating this that, you know, a, a very smart kind of person could come in with a great idea and be successful. Um, but the reality is, is like you have to be able to do the inside baseball thing to, to work. Um, and I think this is where a lot of these companies kind of go sideways is they get $500,000 pilot funded through an SBIR contract or something like that. And they're like, this is it. We're going to be big. And it's like, oh man, like, do you have any idea how low of a percentage there is from a transition from SBIR to production? It's minuscule. Like it almost means nothing. Um, in some ways it's been like, easier than at any point in history to get pilots and prototypes with the DOD. And it's never been harder than at any point in history to get a production contract. It's unbelievable. Like I'll go back and look at the decks of companies that come in to pitch and their projections are just 
I mean, they're off by multiple orders of magnitude and it's not their fault. Like, you know, if you were interacting with like a rational customer on the other side of the table, like you could easily draw these projections, but you know, what ends up happening is it's like they can get a hundred SBIRs, but they can't get a single production contract and it just doesn't scale. And so, um, you know, when you tell your investors a dozen times that you're going to have a hundred million dollars of revenue in two years and you come back to them every time and you have, you know, one one hundredth of that, it's like, it's pretty hard to keep things, keep things going when that's the case. And it sounds like that's a mix of one, having the entrepreneurs understanding how to take that feedback from the end customer and then turn those SBIRs into actual programmer record or production contracts. It also sounds like just going back to what you hit on earlier, there's something from the acquisitions arm of the government uh, that if it were built differently, or if there was a slightly different mindset, perhaps that would be a bit easier. Do you see, obviously people can hire in, people who are experts at the program record side of things, getting you to that. What do you see as more likely to kind of change first? Like these companies who are trying to do this, realizing they, you know, the sales are actually different and adapting to that, or the government actually waking up and adjusting maybe how they do procurement for certain areas? I mean, cynically, I don't, I don't actually think either of them are likely to change. Um, I think, you know, like any area of technology, there are going to be very few winners and a lot of people that, that don't <laughs> win. And that's not necessarily bad. Like, you know, this is kind of the way that things go, especially in venture capital. Um, but I mean, my, my kind of advice would be, you know, you should go and work. If you're interested in this space, like you should go and work for a company that has figured it out first. Like go and work at SpaceX, go and work at Palantir, go and work at Anderil. Um, if you're like super hellbent on doing your own thing, then, you know, you need to get smart on, you know, congressional appropriations and, you know, how you can get contracts issued through OTAs and SBIRs and Incutel work programs. And you have to get smart enough that you can educate the program officers and the acquisition officers about how transitions are done and how to do sole source contracting and, you know, engage with innovation entities like DIU and Softworks and Afworks and things like that. I mean, you you basically have to like become an insider. Um, and I, I think it's genuinely very, very hard. Um, and, you know, it, it, the only reason that we were able to do what we were able to do at Anderil is because many of us came from Palantir and we had already done it. Um, and sadly, I think that that's like probably a prerequisite from doing a good job at this. So Trey, we, we've spent the last few minutes talking about the, the bottoms up, you know, the, the entrepreneurs who want to start the new companies in the space. If you look at it from the top down, uh, over the last 50 years, we've seen the market for defense companies go from 100 to, to 5. And, and Andrew is the first successful startup uh, in the defense industry. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in many, many, many decades. How did we get here? For, for someone that is not as deep into the space, what happened? Yeah, um, well, I... I... For what it's worth, Palantir and SpaceX are also both huge defense companies that are very successful that have been founded in the last 20 years. But um, yeah, I think Anderol is, you know, one of the few, I guess is what I would say. Um, how do we get here? So, you know, after the Cold War, there's this like kind of insider famous, it's not famous in a normal societal way, but it's like an insider famous story about uh, what's called the Last Supper, where the Secretary of Defense sat down all of the defense industry CEOs and he said, uh, basically consolidate or die. Like, you know, defense cuts are coming. We need to keep like a vibrant and competitive landscape, but we can't do it with a hundred companies. So we're going to need to like narrow this down. 
And so you saw massive consolidation in the 90s and into the 2000s and even, even in the 2010s, whatever, whatever we're calling that, that 10-year period. Uh, the aughts, is that right? No, that's the 2000 to 2010. Um, and, you know, there were some good aspects of that. Um, you know, it enabled the government to keep like talent invested into these areas. Um, it, it provided enough competition to get multiple options when they went out to bid these exquisite systems. Um, but in a lot of ways, it made it more or less impossible for new entrants to come in. So it, it just kind of cemented uh, a, a quasi-monopoly of the industry. Um, and, you know, I always think it's like shocking, like as much money that there is flowing into these companies, like Congress spends all their time criticizing technology companies for being monopolies, but they're not looking internally to be like, oh, crap, actually like Lockheed, Raytheon, Northrop, Boeing, this is, this, these are our monopolies and we're defending them. Like literally with the law, we're making it more or less impossible for new companies to break in. And, uh, and that's not good. I think that this is, we're starting to break through with Congress, you know, SpaceX and Palantir both uh, sued the government for a violation of Title 10 U.S. 2377, which is the commercial preference law in the acquisition regulation. It says like, you can't build something from scratch if it exists off the shelf commercially. So I think we're starting to break through by kind of pushing the acquisitions ecosystem to you know, lean back into industry to provide them with capabilities, but it will take time uh, and it won't be easy. You know, there will be continue to be lawsuits and protests and everything like that. Um, but I think we're closer today than we were five years ago by a lot, actually. So given all of that, uh, I am curious looking at, you know, some of the examples that you listed, right? So you have uh, SpaceX, you have Palantir that, as you said, were both founded by billionaires. Um, and then at the same time, you also have companies like Andrel that were co-founded by a billionaire, but also incubated and somewhat spun out a founder's fund. Similarly, Varda has followed that same trajectory. Um, I'm curious how you think about that dynamic. Are there other companies that might be spinning out a founder's fund in the near future? Uh, is that something that you and your team are actively thinking about? Or does it just sort of happen where you say, hey, we're looking to invest in a company that does X. Why has nobody done this yet? Oh, man, maybe we should do this ourselves. Yeah, no, it totally just sort of happens. There's no like build program inside a founder's fund or anything like that. We we don't encourage people to go and start companies, but we also don't tell them not to uh, if there's something that scratches an itch. So obviously, you know, Peter was at Founders Fund uh, when he launched Palantir. Um, Keith Raboy, one of my partners here, started a company called OpenStore a couple of years ago. Uh, Delian and sort of Varda, you know, I, I was uh, I was behind Andrew. So, uh, you know, we're very open to it, and I think that. There are some skill sets that VCs bring to the table that can be really helpful, particularly at the early stages of a company to like understand how to structure the company and how to incentivize people appropriately and you know how to raise capital and you know do a good job build, building kind of a war chest for these really complicated, expensive, you know, capital intensive sorts of businesses. But you know, the, I don't think it, nece it necessarily has to be intentional, and I don't think that all of the big successful companies are going to come out of those sorts of ecosystems. It's just kind of something that we're open to here at Founders Fund. And Trey, 
if you think about the, the the future of the United States, you know, for people who are listening to this, who are interested in technology, and you know, if you care about the future of American and American values, what what do you recommend them to do? Um, what are, what are things that one can do that that you think are actionable and, and that can help the country given the challenges that, that we've we've discussed today? Yeah, I think just thinking really intentionally about career choices, um, and you know. Unfortunately, I think if you were like separate things into like very mission positive companies and or even like morally bad companies or whatever, there's like this huge category in the middle of things that are just kind of neutral, you know, like boring, kind of inconsequential things that maybe have like really material financial gains that could be associated with it, but it doesn't move the needle for like advancing humanity. You know, if, if someone's really motivated by that. I would encourage them to just run at it full steam. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be defense. It could be some other kind of critical mission. Um, but we need good people working on these problems. We need good people in government. We need good people building technology for America. We need good people working on fixing the policy problems that, it, they ex that exist. And there are many, many, many paths available. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be happy to help you get there. Um, but I think step one is just saying, like, I'm not going to go work on this, like, kind of boring, neutral thing. Like, I'm, I, I'm going to dedicate myself to working on something that actually matters and moves the needle. Andrew had a, a huge contract uh, in, in the news uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. So, first of all, congratulations about that. So, as in, Andrew continues to buy more uh, in, innovative uh, defense technology companies, uh, which you, you also had an acquisition uh, last week, right? Um, wh what are the core elements you followed to prevent you from becoming a, a sleepy prime? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great question. Um, so, so far we've acquired three companies. Uh, we, we bought a company called Area I that builds air launched effects. So basically like drones that are shot out of common launch tubes on helicopters and other aircraft. Um, copious imaging, which makes these really cool passive sensors, like non-signal emitting sensors. And most recently, we just acquired a company called Dive Technologies that makes underwater autonomous vehicles. So, you know, we're, we're kind of constantly looking out for companies that are great culture fits for Andorra, where they can come in and kind of integrate very seamlessly into our team uh, that are like super motivated around the mission and really ambitious. And, you know, we're not really interested in acquiring companies that are looking to like get through their golden handcuffs and then peace out. You know, I think that this has been kind of the model that's been taken by the, as you say, like the sleepy primes over the years is that they acquire companies for IP or for contracts or something like that. And like, they're genuinely not surprised if like big chunks of that company just leave after a year, once they hit their vesting cliff or whatever. Um, this is like, not at all what we're trying to do. Like we, we want to buy companies uh, that provide us with capabilities, technology um, that are advancing the mission of the business uh, and are interested in doing that as a big bet on the future in a way that like is persistent and sustained outside of that initial stock grant or whatever. Awesome. Uh, so Trey, uh, to wrap us up, you know, we, we started this by talking a lot about the things that kept you up at night in, in, in the issues that, that, that you deal with in, in this universe uh, that, that you're in. Given everything that we talked about here today, what makes you optimistic and, and what gives you hope um, about the future of the United States? I, I still believe deeply in democracy. I believe in the incentives of 
a well-governed capitalist economy. Um, I believe in liberal values um, of free speech, free dialogue, and I believe these things are worth defending. And, you know, I think one of the things that has emerged, particularly over the last couple of years, is that I think the vast majority of Americans also believe <laughs> those things are worth defending. Um, and, you know, the, our allies and partners internationally look to us for uh, setting a model of what it looks like um, to carry forward that vision for humanity. Um, and I think we have a tremendous opportunity to continue kind of leading the free world uh, in, into a, a brighter future where we're revitalizing and enriching human civilization. And I think there's, it's never been more clear that there is a credible and somewhat terrifying alternative to this that's arising out of these authoritarian uh, governments. Um, and, you know, I think as a nation, we have to really fight hard against that, not only externally in geopolitical sense, but we also have to fight hard against that internally, because I think there's like, you know, simultaneously this growing kind of tribalism that is validating these authoritarian tendencies that with, you know, all sorts of really feel good reasons. But, you know, I, I think we have to push back against that and really lean into the, the values that have made us who we are today, which are, you know, obviously we're not perfect, like the United States people, the United States government, we've made a lot of horrible decisions over our history and there's no arguing against that. Uh, but liberal democratic ideas, I think are just so core to, to the future of humanity. And uh, we have a role to play in ensuring that for not only ourselves, but also our, our allies and partners internationally. That's right. Uh, we can't afford to lose, right? And, and the rise of authoritarians on the inside is a victory for the authoritarians on the outside. Exactly. And they, they have every incentive to want to elevate and highlight those voices that are telling us that we should lean into these brutalist tendencies. And, uh, and I think we're better than that. I think, you know, we've learned our lessons um, about, you know, why the systems that are admittedly flawed on our end have led to better results for human flourishing. Um, and we need to keep telling that story over and over again. And, and I think this is something that like, you know, it, it's so easy. It's so easy, so easy, especially for like people in the mainstream media to critique defense companies as being some sort of like, you know, warmongers or, you know, like unethical arms dealers or something like that. But it's just such a farce. Like the, the idea that we don't need to care about defending our values um, and doing it in a way that prevents war and preserves peace and it increases human flourishing is just dishonest. And, and I think this is something that I'm constantly reiterating to people when we have conversations about ethics. It's like the, the ethical thing to do is not to abstain from making an ethical decision. It's just not an ethical decision if you're abstaining from making it. And I, I am leaning hard into this idea that I haven't abstained. I'm going to make the decision to care about people who are being oppressed. I'm going to make a decision to care about Western liberal democratic values. I'm going to make a decision to care about my interest in enriching humanity. And, you know, I think this is a, a, a part of it. It's not the only part of it, but it is a part of it. And I, and I think a lot of people do agree with that more people than, you know, the media would have you believe for sure. Right. 
Um, and Trey, so since you touched on that, I wanted to double click on something that you said about, you know, abstaining from these, these decisions. Uh, you know, last week we saw Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company and great political commentator, uh, talk about how you can't simultane- simultaneously prevent and prepare for war. What, what do you think about those comments with, you know, the very common criticism that, you know, you can't actually, you know, be funding defense companies, that you can't be working for defense companies uh, and doing all of these things to actually increase deterrence. Uh, and that that in and of itself is, is, a, is an act uh, of war or, or an act of animosity. Yeah. I mean, my response to the and yes, I did see the Ben and Jerry's tweet. My direct response to the Ben and Jerry Street is like, no, you actually can. <laughs> you can prevent and prepare for war. In fact, that is the only way to prevent war is to prepare for war. Um, and so the premise that they were introducing is fundamentally flawed. Um, but at the same time, you know, I love that we can engage in discourse around this. Um, I would go to war uh, to protect their right to have that opinion. And, you know, I, I want that conversation to happen. And if, if sending out that tweet and saying something that is, you know, anyone that has studied political science for more than four minutes in their life would obviously know is ridiculous. I, I want if, if that was what engaged people and caused them to have a conversation about, you know, what preventing war actually looks like, um, then good on them. I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they said it because it was probably it was probably netting out positive for for our ability to engage on these admittedly complicated topics. It's not none of this is like super obvious. It's like these are complicated. Right. Uh, Love that. And and then do you think, you know, a couple of years years ago, we saw Google canceling the the contract that they're going to do with the DOD. Uh, Satya Nadella actually wrote uh, a, a great essay on why, you know, Microsoft should work with the DOD. Do you think we're going to see a backlash against the idea that these companies should not be doing contracts with the with the US, US government? Are we going to see startups and companies be proud and be open uh, to work with the US government the way that Andrew has? Hmm. Well, I certainly don't think that it's the majority of these companies, Google included, um, that has a problem with, you know, working with the United States government. I think the you know, the, in the case of Google, it's like a very, very small minority of incredibly vocal people um, were creating problems for the organization, which led to them, you know, initially bowing out. Google does a ton of work with the U.S. government. I want to make that very clear. So does Microsoft. So does Dell and, you know, Cisco. <laughs> like every every major tech company is more or less doing business with the U.S. government. Um, in fact, we should, I think, as a general rule, like if we want our government to work for us as, as citizens, if we want good governance, it would be unethical to not, if you're a really talented technologist, it would be unethical to not want to help and work with our government to help it govern better. That seems like a fairly obvious statement. At the same time, do I think that there's going to be like this reinvigoration of interests around um, working with the defense community? Maybe, I mean, we saw this after 9-11, there was a huge influx of interest in, in helping the national security community. Um, that was a Sputnik moment, as you referenced before, Lucas. Like, I would love for there to not be a Sputnik moment. That seems like, you know, reintroducing existential threat is never fun. Maybe it like shakes loose the cobwebs of stagnation in society, but, you know, it's not the best way to motivate change uh, from a psychological perspective. 
but I do think that there is an increasing awareness of the fact that like, you know, the world is not a simple place and um, we should do what we can to, to protect. And at the same time, uh, we are all free citizens. And uh, if we don't want to work in defense, we don't have to. And you know what? That's great. I love that. I don't want civil military fusion in the United States. If somebody wants to build cat NFTs, that's great. They should go and build cat NFTs. I love that. I'm okay. I'm totally okay with that. But if you are the type of person that wants to be motivated by this mission and wants to work day to day on this mission, I want there to be places where you can go, aspirational places where you can go to work on the problems that matter most to you. And, and I think that's what companies like, you know, Palantir, Space Xanderol, and so many others that have be, started to intro, intro this space um, are, are really providing. So um, I want that optionality to exist. And, and I think like the most vocal minority shouldn't have a say in whether or not you can go and work on this if it's something that you're motivated by. I love that. Trey, thank you so much for being, being here with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me, guys. Take it easy. Yeah, this is great. Trey, thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.